0: Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for being with us today. It is a great privilege to be able to lead a discussion as we talk about worship in general specifically being at home in your hymnal. The hymnal that we use in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is Lutheran Service Book, to be comfortable, to be at home in your hymnal, whether you are in God's house or whether you're using that hymnal at home in your private devotions. For the last several episodes, we've been talking about God's great gift in the Lord's Supper. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we have a great gift like the Lord's Supper, that there are all kinds of questions and concerns and sometimes even controversies that surround these great gifts of God. What is true in general is true specifically with regard to God's gift of the Lord's Supper. We have talked about in our divine service the importance of the words of institution, the verba, in uh, our celebration and administration of the Lord's Supper. We have talked about how all of our doctrine and theology flows from the words of institution, the verba, and now we are continuing a discussion that we just couldn't quite get complete last time. We're continuing a discussion with regard to some of the practical aspects of the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. Pastor, how are you today in the new year in light of this special topic that we're talking about?
1: I am doing just dandy. Thank you for asking.
0: Jim Dandy to the rescue. Yes. We've uh, we've talked about a lot of different things. This is episode 32. And in uh, episode 31 and 30, we talked more about the Lord's Supper. We talked about uh, bringing the children to the communion rail. We talked about is it appropriate or reverent to sing hymns during the distribution or while you are waiting to receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, the pastor communing himself, should we receive the Lord's Supper in the mouth or in the hand, especially the bread or the wafer. Uh, uh, We talk quite a bit about what you do with the leftovers, the reliquay, and uh, the bottom line there is if you have very, very few leftovers – then you don't have to worry much about what you do with them. Jesus says, eat and drink, and so that's what we do. We eat and we drink. Uh, we also talked theologically with regard to the teaching of receptionism versus uh, consecrationism, and I don't know if that's the proper term, but that's one that uh, that we used. Uh, how the Lord's Supper should never be done in a private mass kind of a setting and uh, we've got a few more topics that we want to that we want to address and they'll they'll spill over into some of the things that we've already talked about but um Pastor Moline did a marvelous job in the previous two episodes talking about a an attitude of the heart and I know he always gets nervous when I'm when I'm uh, using this heart language but we're we're talking about how faith manifests itself faith that is a gift of God by the Holy Spirit how this faith manifests itself in an attitude of reverence in an attitude of reverence pastor In a sense, how does that topic of reverence really kind of lay a foundation for many of these practical things that we're talking about?
1: Well, um... reverence is a response of faith, and so in the same way that prayer is really. Uh, Prayer is the voice of faith, and then reverence maybe is the actions of faith that that carry out and how we behave and what we do in the presence of a God who really is among us. Uh, And so uh, reverence then informs kind of the the, the way we act when we come to the Lord's table. Reverence informs the way we act in the sanctuary. Reverence is why, uh, traditionally, we've worn our nice clothes to church on Sundays instead of our uh, cut-off shorts and T-shirts. And it's not a law, it's not that we're earning our way into heaven by doing these things, but rather, uh, because we really believe God is present here, we act in a certain way. It's the same way um, we would act if uh, you know the President of the United States were coming Uh, to our congregation, we'd probably act a little differently than we would if he wasn't. Uh, Or if uh, maybe a better example in our modern politics today is if the Queen of England was coming, uh, we wouldn't be like, you know, what up, Bessie, how are you? We would say, your majesty, we would bow, we would uh, would, uh, be kind and things like that to her. And so the same way we would act that way to this human being, uh, we ought to act towards the real true Trinitarian divine God who created all things, uh, in fact, probably even more so. Uh, and so it's an act of freedom, uh, and yet there are, in, in all of our freedoms, we, we, uh, because of our freedom, we do submit ourselves in particular ways to things, and, and that's what we're doing here in reverent actions towards God.
0: And in some respects, it's this is kind of a subjective topic, because uh, how— how my piety and my reverence manifests itself may be a little bit different than how your piety and your reverence manifests itself, but it is born of a faith that really believes the word of God and really believes in this context that the bread and wine is the very body and blood of Jesus for forgiveness, life, and salvation.
1: The moment we take anything that is reverence and turn it into a law, all of a sudden we've become legalists and and we are doing something as if God is dependent on our actions being a particular way, and that's never the case. And yet, on the other hand, um, we ought to act reverently because God really truly is present, as we've we've said multiple times here. And so uh, we do we we ought to do this uh, out of faith uh, for for the sake of our faith, to act like our faith really matters, to act like God really is present. Um, if he really is, wouldn't you be respectful and kind to him? And, and that's really, I guess, where the question comes down to. And trying to put that idea into word that it's out of freedom we do this uh, rather than out of law is really difficult an idea to get across.
0: No, and uh... Uh, As our faith grows, our faith response grows as well, and I'm glad you said it the way you did because when we try to take these freedoms that we have or try to force a reverent attitude upon people, it always gets us in trouble. When we approach these uh, gifts of God from a law perspective, and we'll uh, we'll have something specific to talk about with regard to the Reformation a little bit later on in our program today. The uh, the uh, one topic that I have here, Pastor, that I want to uh, I want to begin with is <laughs> the discussion of wine or grape juice in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we we have a uh, history in the United States of America where we have uh, we have a period of prohibition, where we tried to force a piety or a secular pietism upon people, and uh, simply, drove alcohol consumption underground and into the mob and into the mafia. Uh, since that time, there was a, a time of teetotalism with regard to an abstention of alcohol, and that kind of crept into the church a little bit too. So um, why do we use wine in the Lord's Supper and not Grape juice or grape Kool Aid or grape knee high, like Radar O'Reilly drank in MASH. Why do we actually use an alcoholic beverage, wine?
1: Well, uh, as we've talked about with other things in our discussion about the Lord's Supper, we're always trying to do what Christ said with his word. And we know that uh, when uh, Christ took the cup and said, Take, drink, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you, that it contained wine. In fact, uh, it is a genitive of content uh, in that particular use of the word cup. The cup is not the thing that we're taking, it's the wine that's in the cup that's held by the cup that we're drinking. And we know that it's wine because um, that's what they drank back then. There was no such thing as grape juice until the 1800s when it was invented by a man named Welch. Uh, The reality is, uh, even today, when you go and you press grapes from the field, they're already starting to ferment uh, within the time you get them to the factory. grapes naturally have wild yeast on their skins. When you look at your grapes in the refrigerator and you see that white uh, cloudy stuff that's on the skin of the grapes, that's wild yeast. And as soon as you get the juice and the sugar from the juice to that wild yeast, you're going to start to grow wine or make wine. And so uh, since Christ used wine, we use wine as well. And trying to... To come back now later and say that uh, we should use grape juice because uh, drinking wine is bad um, is an anachronism, and it is a modern interpretation uh, placed upon what God's Word actually says. And so we'll stick with what Christ says and what Christ did rather than interpret it modernly.
0: You uh, you said a mouthful there, and you gave us a, a big context to that. Uh, it's really as simple as what did Jesus tell us to do? You um, took wine, he blessed it and said, this is what you do. And so I'm going to listen to Jesus, not my reason, The again, flowing from the verba. Now, in the time that we have left, Pastor, what about those people that because of a health problem or uh, some addiction or whatever are, are not able to physically consume wine?
1: Well uh, in our modern world today we do have uh, de-alcoholized wine where the wine has uh, been boiled till the alcohol leaves it or uh, it's the same thing as when you go to the restaurant uh, and they they pour like brandy or something in a a hot pan and set it on fire the alcohol burns off and you still have liquid that's there Uh, and so there is that available although the question is worth asking, and I'm not trying to give an answer one way or another here, is that still then wine or is it something different? And I I don't know what the answer is. It's an acceptable thing that we have today. Perhaps even a better uh, example, one that's uh, been done throughout the ages of the church, is to take uh, and have water with a teeny tiny drop of wine that's in that water. You're still drinking wine then, and you're still receiving Christ's body and blood for sure in that wine without any questions having to be asked, Um, but yet you're not getting... uh, Enough to affect you in any way, shape, or form. That uh, de-alcoholized wine is is really something
0: new within the last. 15 or 20 years in our uh, society. Newer
1: even than grape juice. Yeah. Newer
0: even than grape juice. And uh, I've been assured that in the process that they cannot remove 100% of the alcohol. And so I know a lot of pastors that this is their preferred method now with regard to alcoholics or, or people that have a health problem because there is some alcohol there. the The bottom line is we do not want to do anything. To put this precious gift of God in doubt. Because our God is a God of certainty, not a God of doubt. Go, your sins are forgiven. There's no doubt in that. And we don't want to add any doubt into the Lord's Supper. We need to take a short break. This is at home in your hymnal. We're looking at the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. We'll be back in just a moment. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each time we get together for At Home in Your Hymnal, we take a look at a certain aspect of the theology and practice of of Lutheran worship what we do and why we do it we are working our way through divine service setting one which is page 151 and following in Lutheran service book in a sense much of what we're talking about is uh, applicable to all five of the divine services. Uh, the The words and the music for the different liturgical parts are different, of course, but uh, the the general theology of worship holds true. And uh, we pray that God would uh, bless us as we continue our discussion. For the last, uh, oh boy, several hours, we've been talking about God's great gift in the Lord's Supper. The Gift of Christ's body and blood, in with and under bread and wine, for us Christians to eat and drink for forgiveness, life, and salvation. Everything we do flows from the verba, the words of institution. And uh, in this particular segment, you know, Pastor, I, I don't really want to step on a landmine in the uh, congregation, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the more uh, challenging, difficult, maybe downright controversial topics in uh, in regard to the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. I'm not talking about some big theological debate about whether the bread and wine is really the body and blood of Jesus. God's word is clear on that. I'm talking about the stuff that gets people all fired up and uh, can sometimes cause all kinds of grief and heartache in the local congregation. And I'm talking about two specific things. They're different, but they're related talking about in the reception of the Lord's Supper, should the church use a common cup? You know, you've you've seen this in uh, Indiana Jones and the quest for the Holy Grail, that common cup, or individual cups uh, that look like tiny little plastic or glass shot glasses. And then related to that, although... Uh, In a little bit different way, but related to that, uh, there are certain congregations like Good Shepherd and Lincoln that bake unleavened bread, and we have homemade bread in the distribution of the Lord's Supper. And there are many congregations, I would say the vast majority of congregations in uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and other sacramental churches like the Roman Catholic Church that use pre-made wafers. And so we have the homemade bread versus wafers question. We have the individual cup versus common cup question. Pastor, you have said again and again and again that we have much freedom when it comes to some of the questions that we are talking about. We want to have an overarching attitude of reverence to help guide us in the application of this freedom. And so, first, let's, uh, let's touch on the common cup versus individual cup question. Pastor, can you give us a little bit of a historical background with regard to the common cup in the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. I think for many of our hearers, uh, for many people 50 and under, they've rarely, if ever, seen a common cup in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod communion service.
1: Yeah, uh, that's probably true. And yet uh, the truth is, uh, historically, throughout all Christendom, uh, the the common cup has been the more traditional, more Common, uh, uh, if you will, <laughs> use for okay, the Lord's Supper. Let,
0: let me let me stop you right there, just to make sure everybody heard that the use of individual cups alongside or instead of a common cup is a new innovation in the church. Is that is that a fair representation of what you just said?
1: It is. Um, it's it's more. The last several hundred years, maybe, we could say, to be, to be generous, the last 200 years uh, has been the individual glasses. Before that time, uh, all Christendom usually used the um, chalice, uh, which is the name of the common cup, the chalice for the distribution of the blood of the Lord. And this is probably some sort of cup like that was used uh, at the time Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. As the words say, Christ took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples, said, take and drink, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins uh, or whatnot whichever version you're looking at and so the the cup uh, a cup is what was used in the first one Uh, now where we have the freedom is what does it mean a cup right Um, we have this idea from scripture that there was one cup and all of them drank from it and so that's where the chalice came and that's how the wine had been distributed throughout all of christendom for a long long time But it doesn't necessarily mean that we couldn't do individual cups or that more than one cup wasn't used. Uh, Oftentimes it probably was. What's newer is that uh, we have these disposable cups that are used now, uh, and this is the more modern thing. And it kind of comes out of our understanding of germs, and this is where that fear has come in. And we're afraid that um, you you might catch Pastor Poppy germs if you drink out of the chalice after he has, and that would never be good, right? And so there's this fear that's behind it uh, that has led to the use of the individual glasses. What's interesting is commonly for all of Christendom, the chalice was made out of silver, or at least lined with silver on the inside, which is a germ-killing metal. In fact, uh, my deer hunting clothes, they put silver threads in there to kill the germs so that you don't smell as much, so the deer can't notice you there from smelling as well. And this is the same thing, then, that's inside of the chalice. The, the silver kills germs on contact. And so I'm uh, you know, not say you have to do one way or the other, but there is that uh, that knowledge there that uh, it's not really passing as many germs on as we think. The alcohol kills germs. The silver kills germs. And, and so that's what's going on there. Um, when we introduce the individual glasses uh, we have questions about how do we handle those what do we do with the wine that's left and so sometimes there's not that a good answer to those questions but we can't say it's not the lord's supper Uh, there's wine there's the word it's the lord's supper whether whatever glass you put it in you could use i mean reverence maybe would say you shouldn't but you could use a red solo cup to distribute the wine as long as the word is spoken It is still. Christ's body and blood. So the question is, what do you put the blood in if you believe it's really Christ's blood? And that's where these questions stem from.
0: And uh, along with that, we have, we have people that, um, uh, you know, you mentioned the sir- silver in the chalice, which uh, is, a, is a natural way to remove any, any germs or bacteria, those kind of things. Uh, w- we have people that, that they sometimes want to get cute and clever and maybe to the point of doing the solo cup, like you said, because we can, because we can, and yet that would kind of violate this general uh, principle of reverence that we've been talking about all the way. But there are other people that would say, well, you know, Jesus probably didn't use a fancy silver chalice. He probably used a plain stone cup. So we should try to use a plain stone cup to get back as close to possible uh to what the way jesus did it or uh we don't want to show off with regard to the gift of the lord's supper so we're going to use a a plain glass cup and uh, show how how pious and how loving we are uh what are what are your thoughts about some of those kind of things that sometimes happen, even with people who want to use a common cup as opposed to individual cups, but get all of this uh, pietistic kind of thought involved?
1: Well, I'd say anytime you make a rule about it, no matter what your rule is, if you say we're going to only use red solo cups to show how humble we are, we're only going to use stone cups because we think that's what Christ used, anytime you make a rule and you're keeping that rule, then you're self justifying, and that's a problem. So it goes back to this idea of freedom and reverence. If Christ's blood really, truly, is it's the blood of Jesus Christ, the God who created all the world that we know and live and move and have our being in. And if it's the blood that he shed from the cross to forgive you all your sins, how important is that blood to you? And the answer to that question kind of informs what you do with it and how you treat it while it's being distributed. And that's where the fancier chalices and things like that have come out of now there's not a rule there either you can't say uh, you can only do a a silver and gold chalice or it's not Christ's body and blood that's not the way that it works but what we do is we give our best towards God and we use our best towards God and so uh, because he is who he is and he's forgiven us all of our sins and that then informs the decisions that we make in regard to what uh, what the chalice is made out of or what it looks like if, if we had an emergency and, um, you know, there was a, a hurricane and all we could find was a red Solo cup, that's fine uh, because that's what we have at the time. Uh, we have that freedom. And yet, if we're going to be doing it in the, the sanctuary as a part of a regular church service, we should try and do use something that is much more reverent and uh, appropriate for containing the blood of God. Because we can do better.
0: Yeah. Because right. we can do better. Um I think this uh, this discussion has been good. It has been fair. It has been helpful. And when we come back from our break, we want to look at the flip side of this coin. Uh, this may not be as big a question for a lot of people in the wider realm of lutheranism but it is certainly an ongoing question here at good shepherd with regard to homemade bread homemade unleavened bread or bought prepackaged pre-packaged wafers that uh, most of lutheran churches use uh is one better than another is there a um Uh, way to look at this with regard to reverence, Um, does the whole topic of what do you do when you're sick, you know, like you have the silver in the chalice, uh, does this topic come into play with regard to the reception of the bread or the wafer as well. All of these things are kind of interwoven and interrelated, and that's what we want to talk about when we come back from our break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. Thanks for tuning in as we discuss the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. We'll be right back. This week's church service is more than hymns and a sermon. Get a more in-depth study of this week's message with Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline on Proclaiming the One. Tune in Sundays at 12 p.m., Wednesdays at 11 a.m., Fridays at 11 a.m. and again at 6 p.m., and Saturdays at 10 a.m. For past episodes on demand, go to TheCross957.org backslash ProclaimingTheOne. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're looking at God's great gift of the Lord's Supper, specifically the distribution and reception of this great gift. The uh, bumper music that you're hearing today coming in and uh, exiting from our uh, program, this is episode 32, is uh, hymn 595 in LSB. It's probably not a familiar hymn to you, Oh, Blessed Spring. It's a new hymn in LSB. It is uh, in the section called Baptismal Life. We sing it occasionally here during the distribution of the Lord's Supper, and it is a great, great little hymn that, um, that does not really draw attention to the hymn itself. So you can focus on the words, O blessed spring, where word and sign embrace us into Christ the vine. Here Christ enjoins each one to be a branch of this life-giving tree. Wonderful words to ponder on as we ponder study, and discuss the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. In our previous segment, we talked quite a bit about the distinction between receiving things by way of common cup or individual cups. Uh, Pastor Moline did a wonderful job talking about the historical significance of the common cup versus individual cups, and also, some of the challenges that we have when we have individual cups about um, there's always a little bit of wine left in the cup and what do you do with that? And there, there are some extra challenges that are there. Pastor, before we move into the next uh, section where we talk about uh, uh, the host, the bread, the wafer, um, what about someone who would say, I want to receive the Lord's Supper by common cup because of the symbolism involved, that Jesus more than likely distributed the first Lord's Supper by common cup. What would you say to, to that? Is that, uh, is that a speculative kind of a thing? Is that a reverent kind of an attitude? Uh, I've heard that numerous times, and I'm just curious what, uh, what your thoughts would be.
1: Well, I'd say the same thing as before. We can't make a law or a rule about it. Um, <clears throat> we, we can say probably according to the words of the scriptures that Jesus used a cup, not a uh, multiple cups. He took a cup and he, he distributed amongst the disciples. And we have Paul that says, um, you know, uh, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of our Lord, the cup that we drink from? And so we have these ideas here. Now, once again, the important part is the wine attached to the word that's Christ's blood. And so, however, we're getting that is what we want to focus on. And Sure, there is some symbolism. We are the body of Christ, and we we ought to uh, realize that and acknowledge that in our participation in the Lord's Supper. And perhaps we should uh, drink from the common cup for that reason, but we can't make a law or a rule out of it because once we do that, We've become legalists.
0: You know, I had to chuckle when you were saying that, Pastor, because isn't, isn't it just that simple? The important thing is the wine, the, the, the blood of Christ given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And what do we do? We focus on the vehicle that the wine comes in. We major in the minors, and this is where so often so many of the controversies happen in the church. What I hear Uh, And what I've heard for the last 30 years with regard to this common cup, individual cup question, usually goes like this. Well, when I was growing up in my home congregation, we only used the common cup. And so we have to use the common cup now. Or... When I was growing up in my home congregation, we never had the common cup. We only had individual cups and I'm not going to do anything other than that now. And I'm, I'm sad when I hear those kind of things. I know, I know people want to honor, uh, their, their childhood or their hometown congregations or hometown pastor growing up and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, That is not the kind of general reverent attitude that we're talking about, is it, Pastor?
1: No, and uh, just because your congregation did something in the past does not mean that it matches with the Scriptures or that it listens to the Word of Christ. And even uh, if it does, if you're doing it for that reason, it's still not the right reason.
0: Okay. Um, that,
1: That bridges
0: the gap very well now. ...into a discussion with regard to the bread, the host, the wafer. Uh, Here at Good Shepherd, and this was a tradition that was here way before Poppy got here, uh, the congregation, there are members of the congregation that bake unleavened bread. And, uh, you know, back in the olden days, the congregation was very small, and so it didn't take much unleavened bread. The Lord's Supper wasn't offered all that often... And so it was not a major thing to do to have people in the congregation bake unleavened bread. And that's what was used in the distribution of the Lord's Supper. We have continued that practice up until this day. And it has become increasingly more of a challenge. We, by the grace of God, we have the Lord's Supper more often and we have a much, much larger congregation, 10 times larger congregation than uh, than when I got here 20-some years ago. And so we have some extra challenges with regard to the homemade bread, the homemade unleavened bread that we have. And the vast majority of the congregations in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, this isn't even a question because they use... These little wafers, and sometimes people will disparagingly say the little styrofoam wafers. Uh, Pastor, what are these wafers, and why, oh why, have they become so popular, not only in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but in Christendom in general?
1: Well, yeah. So go back to history. Uh, The the bread that Christ probably used is probably much closer to what we get at the Indian restaurant now, the naan, uh, where they made a bread of water and flour and made it into a pancake and stuck that to the inside of a baking oven uh, to let it bake right away. And so, um, you know, the bread that... um, Christ used is like that. Now, as you go through history and the bread is being distributed to more and more people, that involves ripping and breaking and tearing of that bread. And what the question started to become was, well, this is making crumbs. Uh, And what about those crumbs? How do we handle the crumbs? And so you've seen in Catholic churches where they have the little... um, dish that they put underneath the chin of the person to catch any crumbs and make sure that they're collecting them all so that they can be consumed and that that's maybe taking things to the uh, extreme absurd absurdium uh, but uh, that's that's what's behind that idea. And so an easier solution would be to what if we just make these individual? bread hosts that are flour and water and that we can distribute that way without having to worry about crumbs and broken pieces and little flecks or whatever that get dropped onto the floor and so that's what's behind the idea with hosts and so once again i'd say this is not a thing that we can make a rule about but what we want to do is we want to consider is it bread which would mean, is it flour and water? Uh,
0: and Getting back to the words of institution that drive our practice and uh, theology of the Lord's Supper, Jesus took bread.
1: And ancient bread, whether leavened or unleavened, is flour and water and maybe a little bit of oil. Okay, so uh, water and flour. And uh, is it a way to distribute it crumb-free, so that we don't have lots of little pieces that are getting lost all over the place. And so those are the main concerns. And so with homemade bread, you know, we have crumbs. Uh, With uh, with, uh, the other bread, maybe the flavor's not quite right. I think there is a happy medium somewhere to be found and uh, in our freedom it's probably appropriate to do that and to handle it reverently, to take care of the crumbs if there are any, to distribute it in such a way as to limit those and to understand that it really is Christ's body that we're eating here in, with, and under the bread. Um, So maybe that's a good starting point. You Tell me where I've missed.
0: (laughs) No, I think that is a good starting point. And uh, one of the problems that uh, we have had here at Good Shepherd is it's really hard because we have the Lord's Supper every sunday every service and because you know we we have a congregation that will have 2 to 400 people in attendance on any given weekend that you don't know how many people are going to attend the lord's supper we're trying to constantly guess the numbers that will be in attendance we want to have enough bread on hand we don't want to run out and so We tend to make more, and then if we don't need it, we freeze it and put it in the freezer, and so sometimes the bread gets very dry, and then we have more crumbs. And if we have dry bread and the people don't have the time to uh, swallow that bread, then that those bread crumbs may not only be in the plate or on the floor but those bread crumbs may be in the chalice or in the individual cup and so we have all yeah. kinds of uh, you know, like how do you store this bread you don't want it to get moldy those are issues that you don't have with individual wafers yeah. and i know and i know missouri synod lutherans missouri synod lutherans are extremely frugal And I have to believe that one of the reasons why communion wafers became the norm is because it was much easier to deal with the leftovers, and you never, ever, ever had to worry about the wafers getting wormy, buggy, or moldy. Pastor,
1: what do you think about that? Am I getting too earthy no. in my practical discussion here? I think that's probably a large part of it. It allows it to be traveled uh, across long distances in the pastor's communion kit or whatnot back in the old days as well. And I think then also lots of times the question uh, about this topic, you know, homemade versus the wafers, you know, people say, what well, styrofoam or it's too dry or it sticks to your mouth. The question isn't necessarily about what's it taste like. The question is, is it bread that Christ's word has been spoken over you know Uh, that's the important part there and so we have that freedom to use bread and to say christ's word over it and we have freedom in that the rest of it then those practical questions we need to ask and consider and how are we handling it if it really is christ's body this is the same question with the blood right could we do it with the dixie cup sure uh, but it is Christ's blood, and we probably should do something more reverent and respectful and careful with it than that. And that's the question then that comes out. The, the wafers, the the hosts, give a little bit more assurity because we don't have all the crumbs and the little pieces falling, and uh, they're more consistent as well. Okay.
0: Um, and I'm sure that as people are listening to our discussion, they're thinking about things they had never thought about. And these are sometimes the the very practical things that your pastors or pastors and elders together are discussing on a regular basis. So as you've heard some of this discussion, if you have some questions or have some strong feelings one way or the other, bring it to your pastor, bring it to the pastors and the elders so that we can talk about this based on God's word. We'd love to do that. Don't be afraid to do that. Absolutely. And, uh... Uh, we need to take a break, and we got a little bit more that we need to talk about on this topic. And uh, we will be back in just a moment. Don't change that dial. This is at home in your hymn.
1: You are listening to K N N A L P ninety five point seven FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Good Shepherd is a liturgical. Confessional Historic Lutheran Church in South Lincoln, 3825 Wildbriar Lane. We use the hymnal for our worship services. We encourage people to use their hymnal for their family and private devotions as well. That's why we're taking some extra time to work our way through Divine Service Setting 1. We're looking at the Lord's Supper, specifically the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. We've spent a lot of time, or as former Pastor Burnt used to say, we've parked the car here a long time. This is episode thirty-two, and in part four of episode thirty-two, this will be our last specific discussion of uh, the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. We're going to move on in episode 33 now to uh, talk about the post-communion canticle and some of those kind of things. But uh, as we bring this discussion to a close, we've, we've talked about common cup versus individual cup. We've talked about homemade bread versus wafers. And there's more that we could say on that, but hopefully we've brought enough up to stimulate some Discussion There, pastor, in the history of the Lutheran church, we have not a controversy so much with regard to common cup or individual cup, uh, not so much a controversy with regard to wafers versus home baked bread, but we have had a, con- a controversy that does kind of touch and border on both of these. And this is what happened when the radical reformers, specifically Karlstadt, when the radical reformers started to make wholesale changes in the communion liturgy while Luther was in hiding, Junker Jorg kind of time, while Luther was in hiding for fear of his life, uh, hiding at the Wartburg Castle. Luther came back and preached a series of sermons. These are sometimes referred to as the Invocavit sermons and uh, eight little sermons that people have said have changed the world. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on in the church at that time and much of it revolved around the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. This is how crucial it is that we frame our doctrine and practice clearly on the word of god and we do this in a pastoral way pastor can you give us a little more detail about what was going on with carlstadt and why luther came back
1: well um carlstadt was a much more radical reformer and what he wanted to do was to change things um and he, he did so without actually teaching why that he was doing what he was doing. Did you hear that, folks? He made change without teaching, teaching from the word of God. Okay, thank you. So Go on. Um, making those changes and not actually explaining what was going on or why was going on. For example, uh, he stopped wearing vestments. It's something we're free and we don't have to. Uh, and so since we didn't have to, he just decided not to. And... Made giving, that the new rule, that giving you could the impression
0: not. Uh, whether he said it or not, pastor. But giving the impression that anybody who wore vestments was sinning, correct. Uh, and so now it was not a matter of freedom. And I think this is extremely important for people to wrap their brains around. Go on.
1: And, and so he makes these new rules and these new laws, if you will, and enforces them. He doesn't explain it to the people, and he says this is the way that you have to do it now moving forward or else. And when Luther hears about this, Luther comes back to Wittenberg, and he shaves a tonsure into his head, dresses like a monk again, puts on the full vestments again, and he preaches these sermons here during the Lenten season, uh, addressing these issues directly. And he's, I believe he says what we've been trying to say is that there's not a particular way that you have to do it in order to be saved. But now that you are saved, you have freedom. And so you ought to understand why you're doing what you're doing, and you ought to do so reverently and explain everything as clearly as possible. And that's what we're trying to do in this whole radio show in particular, uh, explain why we do what we do so that we can understand it and have our attention fixed not on the pastor himself, not on the things the pastor's doing, but rather that our focus might be entirely focused upon Christ and the forgiveness that he bestows within the divine service.
0: Now, the specific issue at hand, and uh, I'm not sure if Luther addresses this in uh, his Invocavit Sermon 3 or 4 or 5, but it's one of them. They're short little sermons, they're in the public domain, check them out, but the, the question was receiving the Lord's Supper in one kind. It was the practice at that time that the people would only receive the bread or the host. And the only person that received the chalice, the cup, the wine, was the priest. This was the practice. Luther was against this practice. Luther uh, worked hard to change practice this practice so that the people of God would receive both the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. So what was the problem with what Karlstadt was doing, Pastor?
1: Well, um, in the words of institution, we hear that you should take the bread and you should take the wine and you should— Say the word, and you should eat and drink both of them. And so for us to go in and to do only one kind or the other would be to not actually listen to the entire word itself. Uh, And uh, on the other hand, when someone's used to something and you haven't explained why you're changing it, uh, introducing the both kinds when they have only been doing the one and you haven't actually told them what's going on or why or how you ought to rightly receive it or reverently receive it, uh, we also have a problem. All these things go together. A pastor always is teaching and um, moving forward as best he can to explain what's going on uh, to all the members. I oftentimes like to use the example that a congregation is like a fleet of ships, and the pastor, in a way, is sort of the captain, and he's trying to get everybody to turn the same direction at the same time without running into one another. And sometimes that's kind of a difficult thing, and Karlstadt um he tried to just bulldoze his way through things and not actually explain or teach or be patient or kind.
0: And in so doing, he took something that was good, the people of God receiving both the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, and he caused weak hearts and weak consciences to sin. By not teaching them why he was making this change in the liturgy and in the distribution, he was causing people to think that they were sinning, and they certainly were sinning against their own conscience, because they were doing something that they shouldn't be doing. They had not been properly taught. They had not been properly catechized. Now, the reason why I wanted to go into this great detail here with and kind of wrap up everything we've been talking about with the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper, this same thing happens in congregations today. Whether it's kneeling or standing, whether it's receiving the Lord's Supper, the the host, in your hand or in your mouth, we sometimes give the impression that unless you do something something in which we are perfectly free, that unless you do something in a certain way, you are somehow sinning against the Word of God. And that is why pastors, congregations need to constantly be teaching, and, folks, listen up, this is why the people of God need to constantly have their ears and their heart open to the teaching with regard to the Word of God. Now um, here's a here's a specific situation at Good Shepherd that I will bring up and I'm not trying to not trying to uh, call anyone to account on the radio, but here is a specific situation where this comes into play. We try really, really hard to not have any leftovers in the distribution of the Lord's Supper. We try to cut everything very, very close, and so sometimes you might get a double piece of bread or a half a piece of bread because we want to bring things to, to a close. It's much easier with the bread than it is with the wine because we have some people who receive the, the wine, the blood of Christ, in the common cup, and some who receive it only in the individual cup. And while we can gauge the, the amount of wine, sometimes we have more common cup or more individual cups left over and we have to take the individual cups and pour them into the common cup. It's almost impossible to do it the other way around. And so you're uh, sitting in the back of the church, you come up to receive the Lord's Supper, and we're out of individual cups. What do you do? Folks. I'm telling you, what is the reason why we have the distribution of the Lord's Supper? To receive the blood of Christ, the body of Christ as well, in with and under bread and wine for forgiveness, life, and salvation. This is not a time to be thinking to yourself, oh, well, I don't normally do the common cup, so I'm just going to pass like at a buffet meal this particular day or I'm going to get mad because the pastor didn't guess and read my mind or the number of people that were going to be here, and he should have guessed right and had an individual cup for me. This is not a time for these petty grievances to come because these block a reverent, faithful reception of Christ's body and blood. Pastor, we got about a minute and a half left. Your comments... Uh, On what I said, and if I've said anything too harshly, pastor, please correct me or forgive me
1: No, I think this is what we've said the whole time, right? The important part is that we take and eat the bread, which is Christ's body for the forgiveness of our sins That we take and drink the wine, which is Christ's blood for the forgiveness of our sins And the rest of the things uh, we have freedom in So long as we are acting appropriately to the actual presence of God in these items And uh, treating them with reverent respect uh, and so, you know, if you drink it out of the individual cup or the the chalice, it's still Christ's blood. If you uh, get it in a, a piece of Wonder Bread or a, a host or even an entire baguette, it's still Christ's body. Uh, and the the accidents, the the description of the bread and the wine, uh, aren't as important as the word, uh, and or what carries the bread or the wine isn't as important as the word. And so, the word and the the bread and the wine, those are the things to focus on. That's where Christ is giving you these gifts, and all the rest of it really doesn't matter that much.
0: Pastor, uh, it has it has been a very very important time, not only for you and me, you know, we've only been working together for a little more than a year, not only for you and me as pastors trying our best to serve the people of God in this place, but I think this has been a good, healthy conversation that sometimes you just can't have uh, shaking hands when you're leaving church or whatever, a good, healthy conversation to be able to talk in the big picture with regard to this great gift and the importance of discussing some of these practical questions based on God's clear word. And uh, I just I want to emphasize one last time that uh, Pastor Moline's words are spot on, spot on, spot on. Faith creates in our hearts an attitude of reverence as we hear the word of God, as we approach the altar of God, as we receive his gifts. And it is that same reverence that we, as your pastors, uh, strive for each and every time we lead the people of God in worship at this place. Uh, this has been episode 32. When, uh, when we come back next week with regard to... Divine Service Setting 1, we're going to be looking at what do you do after you get back to the chair, Uh, the post-communion collect, the post-communion prayer, uh, and also what is the proper thing for uh, someone who has just received Christ's body and blood to do when they get back to the chair when the distribution is still going on. That's what we have to look forward to, God's richest blessings in Christ.